navigating a chatbot edition of Spin Cycle. I'm Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis, uh, broadcasting as ever from the unceded lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I'm flying solo or... Perhaps it's uh, flailing is the word, uh, without my usual co-host and um, person who's actually good at radio, uh, Jess Lilly, who is off taking uh, an extremely well-earned break. Um, So it's been such a uh, crowded and in some ways dispirited media week uh, since we last spoke to you. Um, uh, I don't really feel equipped, both in terms of... um, my the time available to us and my ability to do this by myself to really kind of unweave the uh, the really dispiriting ongoing saga concerning concerning the trial of, of Blue Slam and uh, but I do think that um, the weaponization of leaks to the media um, is something that this show certainly will return to and, and um, Jess and I have been talking about who the best person to speak to on that topic will be so we will return to uh, the role of leaks in shaping a political narrative um, on a future show for sure um, so I think I'm going to just quickly scan over a couple of things before we get to our guest this week um, which is Walter Marsh he has written a fantastic book called Young Rupert which um which deals with the early days of Comrade Rupert Murdoch when he was a young lefty student starting out in the media business. Um, long-time listeners of the show will know that I'm I'm someone who obviously does have to focus professionally quite a lot on Rupert Murdoch and his history, but I, even I found this book very revelatory and um, and really thrilling, so I cannot wait to chat with to Walter about that. Uh, before that, just some of the news of the week. I think one of the things that really stood out to me this week was the kind of ongoing collapse of the site formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, as any kind of public square. The, the, the kind of irony of all this, obviously, is that when Elon Musk bought the site, he said that he was going to crack down on censorship and make sure that it kind of returned to its its roots as a, um, as a, as a kind of proper public square. That's not really how it's turned out. The ABC has uh, dispensed with a, the vast majority of its accounts now. Um, for the longest time in the Twitter era, uh, ABC had accounts for almost every individual section of their of their coverage and, every, and a lot of individual programs. Uh, this is a process that's been happening for a while. Back in February, they closed three of the major um, the major programs, individual Twitter accounts, uh, so Insiders, News, Breakfast, and ABC Politics. They've now gone ahead and closed a huge amount more. Uh, they basically said that... Um, that it didn't really have any big impact on their traffic when they when they closed them, which I think does point to the fact that perhaps for all the um, all the hype that we always had about it, especially as journalists or, or, or people who kind of engage with the media, it was always kind of a marginal place. It was always something that uh, the average ABC viewer was not necessarily going to encounter the that primarily the content that they kind of engaged with. Um, but this, I think, does continue a slide that we've kind of seen. So. Um, but there are a few that are staying, um, ABC Sports, uh, ABC Chinese, ABC Australia. Um, the the uh, the reasons that they've given up, they said that there are many reasons that they chose. One was the fact that previous closures hasn't really ended up having all that much of an impact on them. Um, but also that, that uh, X has reduced its trust and safety terms. It's, it's an increasingly toxic place, they say. Uh, Elon Musk, the, the owner, uh, kind of came back to that uh, in a very typical way, he said, "Well, we pr- of course they prefer the censorship-friendly social media, uh, but the Australian public does not." I guess we'll 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 see how that shakes out in the long run. 
the other major news story that I thought was a really interesting one, one broken by my colleagues at Crikey, uh, Cam Wilson and John Buckley, is the, the revelation that not only has News Corp being, been using artificial, artificial intelligence to produce thousands of their uh, weekly information-based articles for, for a number of years, uh, but this was something that their staff apparently on the whole, did not really know about. This was something that uh, company chair Michael Miller revealed in address to the World News Media Congress in Taipei. He said that uh, more than 3,000 hyperlocal articles a week are being produced via via AI, basically. Uh, these are kind of areas like uh, local weather, uh, fuel prices, traffic reports, things like that. So not, not they're not doing major investigative reporting, but it's still obviously a huge amount of content. And this is something that, according to to the reporting that, that Cam and John have done, was something that the, the vast majority of News Corp employees didn't know. They've now written a, a sort of please explain style letter saying this is something that really ought to have been run by uh, the staff before it was gone ahead with. Uh, so again, that's something to really watch. And it, it does raise really interesting questions about um, the, the, the role of, in, of artificial intelligence and the threat that it poses to jobbing journalists of one kind or another is something that uh, kind of unsurprisingly journalists have been talking a lot about, especially this year. It's really crept up on us in some ways. Um, but this reveals that that maybe the, the call was kind of coming from inside the building, that this is something that has been... Um, that has been in play for quite some time and has probably been costing certain jobs for, for quite some time. So it's it's an area to watch. And it'll be interesting to see if any similar revelations come out against um, uh, regarding any of the other kind of big media companies. Um, so that has been something that I've been really kind of keeping a close eye on. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Uh, Walter Marsh is a journalist based in Adelaide with a background in history and culture. A former editor and staff writer at the Adelaide Review and Rip It Up, his writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Monthly, uh, Crikey, The Saturday Paper and In Daily. Uh, his first book is called Young Rupert, The Making of, a Murdoch, of the Murdoch Empire and we are delighted to have him with us. Walter, welcome. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Don't, no problem at all. We, I'm, uh, long-time listeners of this show will know that I'm absolutely desperate to geek out with you on this book which i again congratulations on the book it is wonderful um one of the kind of i guess recurring themes that i that i've noticed in a lot of the coverage that the book has received is that uh there's a sense that um when when you're sort of confronted with the idea of a new rupert murdoch biography there's a sense that there's so many of them out there and you might get the sense that there's nothing new to find out about his life but of course this book proves that that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, we'll get into all the many reasons why, but um, what, in the first instance, was it that, that brought you to this book, that made you... What untold story did you think needed to get out there? Yeah, well, I think the main starting point for me is uh, I'm based in Adelaide, that's where I'm talking to you from now, um, and so as long as I've been alive since for like the past 30 years, pretty much, um, Adelaide's been a one-paper town. Uh, the Adelaide Advertiser has been owned by... Murdoch and his corp since the mid-80s, and in 1992, um, it became the only paper. So I kind of just grew up with that as the local paper. The first one that I read for a long time was the only one, and then eventually I began to realise it was actually part of this much bigger story, and it was a story that actually Adelaide played quite a, a foundational role in. So, yeah, I was wanted to first explore, I guess, how it came to be a one-paper town, but also how a, a city that could 
can we support you know such one newspaper with such a concentrated level of um, ownership and media? How that could be the, the foundation for this huge global empire. So that's kind of sent me down the rabbit hole. But once I started looking into the sort of archival sources from that period and saw this sort of story unfolding in front of me, I mean that. There are, as you said, there's a lot of a lot of books written about Rupert and um, the Murdoch Empire. I've got. I'm just looking at my my bookshelf now. It, it is <laughs> buckling under the weight of them all. Um, this was a story, you know, because you know he's led such a long and colourful and occasionally scandalous life that there's so much to cover. But this this early period in in Adelaide, increasingly, I thought became either sort of like a, a novel kind of footnote or just fell through the cracks entirely. But the more I kept, you know digging and, and te- teasing that story out, it seemed actually it was kind of really interesting, self-contained, um, kind of a, a microcosm, I guess, of everything that came afterwards. And sure, a lot of them things are different because he's young and he starts off quite left-wing. It's spoiled, really. He doesn't stay that way. Um, but he's, and he's a critic of all the things he later embodies. Um, but you can see how the lessons that he learns and, and the, the pressures that he's under um, come to bear on the, the seven years that follow yeah, you, you hinted that, and that I think is probably the first revelation that will probably surprise a lot of the people that read the book. Is and actually, I'll read a quote from from the book, which is either either penned by him, or if not, you say most almost certainly edited by him. Which is what seems to be well established is that not only do Australian conditions lend themselves to monopolies on account of the small population, but also private monopolies are detrimental to the interests of any community. Uh, it is likewise often pointed out that socialism would merely mean government monopoly instead of private monopoly. That is quite true, but what a difference between the two. Now, obviously, we belled the cat slightly there, but, but you would not expect that to be words that could be ascribed to any publication associated with Rupert Murdoch. Tell us a little bit about his uh, Comrade Murdoch kind of phase of his life. Yeah, so that's often been part of this footnote of, of the Murdoch story. You know, people often talk about the having the bust of Lenin um, in his room at Oxford. But it was interesting to yeah, go through sort of, you know, some of the sources include, like that one was from um, this sort of literary journal that he briefly edited um, while he was at Geelong Grammar. Um, I think it's the first and perhaps the only time, as far as I could gather, that he actually had the role of editor um, and yet had that editorial, which I think was the... Was it the case for socialism? Anyway, there's that, but then there's also these um, great records in the Geelong Grammar um, student newspaper of the debating society, the um, uh, where, where Rupert, you know, was first referred to as Comrade Murdoch, and he always seemed to come down on the side of whatever the most um, extreme left wing argument could be made. He was always there, very passionately arguing it, um, even to the extent that I think uh, one of those discussions around monopoly actually arrived when. Um, uh, Harold Holt, who was then an opposition um, minister, um, shadow minister, came in as a sort of a guest debater, I guess, a guest speaker, and yeah, Rupert um, jumped in and started um, talking back to him after Holt had made the case that um, government, uh, no, private monopoly is actually a good thing. Um, but that's the starting point, and of course, when you, as you're reading this and seeing this unfold in the archives, you just you know, of course, that there's this big other shoe that's going to drop, and he's not going to stay that way. So, seeing how it could come from that starting point, and the the things that um, pressured him to make those choices, uh, and the path that led to him eventually becoming, you know, the kind of great union buster of the '80s and onwards, um, that became sort of the defining arc, I guess, of, of the story that I'm telling. Yeah, and I suppose one of the things that uh, is slightly ambiguous in the book um, is whether any of this 
whether the the progressivism that he extols, as you say, in some cases quite extreme leftism that he that he extols, whether that's something that is sincerely held or something that is just part of his innate desire to stir things up, to to uh, perhaps either offend people or at least stir the pot to be kind of unconventional. Um, I don't know. Did, what, did, did you come to a conclusion on on the sincerity of of his early leftism? Yeah, well, I think as he, as he said just then, he is one thing is for sure. He is kind of a natural born shit stirrer. That's the one uh, unambiguous um, conclusion we can draw from from this book. Um, but yeah, even in those early days when he was at Geelong Grammar, he felt like this outsider. Um, you know, surrounded by the children of Melbourne's scions and, you know, the children of the elite establishment. Um, and so he would often, you know, partly in rebellion as well, one classmate um, speculated that he had this father who was a prominent, quite conservative press baron. It was all kind of youthful rebellion. Yeah, a lot of people didn't take him necessarily very seriously, which is why he often got, you know, nicknames like Como Murdoch or Bullo Murdoch because of the, the bullshit artistry, which was already... Um, quite evident at that early age but yeah it's very difficult to when you're telling Rupert's story and trying to piece together um, from the the primary sources but also what he said afterwards because there's a story that he that he tells himself and then there's the story the the reality of it of his life and the context he existed in as it actually was so I think at the time he probably felt like he was this outsider and was you know a genuine kind of lefty um, uh you know, rabble rouser. But as one another classmate that I spoke to, um, who's a very respected art historian now, he he pointed out that you know Murdoch might have um, felt like out of place, like maybe he was getting teased because of his father being very prominent um, in the newspaper world. But actually, you know, that was that was Geelong Grammar. He wasn't an outsider in any respect. He was a product of this incredibly privileged system, which is interesting to see how. And that's kind of one of the foundational tensions, I guess, which was interesting to tease out in the book was that he could, how Rupert could be um, this kind of disruptor, this outsider, this kind of pirate-like figure that swings into markets, market after market all around the world, how he could have that kind of self-image and that modus operandi, I guess, but at the same time be the product of uh, of these systems as well. You know, he's the son of a press baron who is the... Was the um, the protege of Lord Northcliffe, one of the biggest press brands in, in the UK. So he's part of this big lineage, but he's also regarded himself as this kind of rebel outsider, and it's that interesting tension and um, disconnect, I guess, that it becomes one of the animating forces. Yeah, and I suppose there's a sense that that is one of the many ways in which this book does form a bit of a, a, a simulacra or a microcosm of the, the man that he would end up being because obviously a huge amount of, and it's often commented on, a huge amount of the commentary that now emanates from what we kind of call broadly the Murdoch press, the News Corp uh, media from around the world, is that sense of, of um, speaking up to the elites of, 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 in this case, it's gone now from a left-wing perspective to a right-wing. This is now the, the last bastion of conservatism and common sense fighting against these kind of left-wing elites that have taken over all of our institutions and things like that. Mm. Um, so do you think that that was sort of, yeah, again, a kind of the seed for that kind of thinking as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is uh, definitely a conclusion you can draw from that. And even one of the the interesting things about the, the story as it, as it unfolds in Adelaide, so um, for your listeners' context, um, uh, in the final years of Rupert's father's life, Sir Keith Murdoch, he, he spent these last years trying to 
put together this inheritance for Rupert. Keith had spent the last you know, 30 years building up the Herald and Weekly Times empire for Melbourne, um, but he didn't actually own it. So his last years were spent you know, furiously trying to piece together a few other papers and some magazines and some radio stations that he could pass on to Rupert. Um, but because he died um, before he'd kind of finished that job, I guess, uh, Rupert was thrown into this kind of scramble where Keith's former colleagues at the Herald, they were trying to claw all of those interests back into the Herald Empire, um, you know, justifiably from their perspective. They, some of them regarded it as theft um, and sort of skullduggery. Um, but from Rupert's perspective, um, his father's old colleagues, you know, family friends were trying to squeeze him out and, and cut him out of the newspaper business before it even started. And that's how he ends up in Adelaide, because all the, the better bits, I guess, from Rupert's perspective, like the Courier Mail in Brisbane, they'd been bought out, acquired by um, by the Herald in Melbourne. So he, he lands in Adelaide, which at the time is uh, run by this conservative establishment, which has really, you know, scarcely been challenged for the last 20 years. It, the government is held in place, the place of government is held in place by this gerrymander where country voters get twice the voting power of those in the city. And Rupert is, uh, he inherits the Afternoon News, which is sort of the, the second-tier paper of the city. And the main paper, the biggest paper, the Advertiser, is part of the Herald Empire, owned by, run by his father's old colleagues and totally in step with that conservative establishment. So Rupert finds himself, you know, dropped into Adelaide at 22, um, probably not where he imagined um, spending his 20s and starting off um, in the newspaper business, but he's thrust into this environment. And it was interesting for me to see the choices that he and um, Roland Rivette, who's his editor, was installed by Sir Keith, but these two have a really interesting relationship, which is kind of one of the other big arcs of the book. But they very deliberately at the start make a point of reaching out to these readerships which are either, you know, Labor voting, so they've been disenfranchised by the government of the day and they aren't being spoken to by the advertiser, or they're the, this growing migrant population which also lives um, sort of in the inner city, in the inner suburbs where all these um, growing industries are based. So when the, the electorate has been gerrymandered uh, and the Liberal Party are being returned despite losing the popular vote, obviously there's, you can see that there's a huge... Um, potential from a commercial perspective if you speak to the 50.1% of the population that aren't really being represented. So you see things like, you know, Rowan Rivette at one point makes a point of um, uh, issues a memo telling his court reporters to not mention the term new Australians in the court report um, unless it's really necessary, just because it adds totally unnecessary stigma to mm. new migrants from Europe at the time mainly. But... It, they were already being stigmatised enough as it was, and he saw that the frame adding um, this, you know, sort of dog whistly term "new Australians" um, to court reports just sort of added to that. Which, you know, looking in the context of some of the reporting of the Murdoch press and outlets today, yes. seems very, very strange. Suffice yes. to say, it didn't didn't stay that way. No, it's a but, notable contrast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was the kind of yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was I was I, I, um, I was going to say that this this kind of approach this. Um, Kind of, yeah. Uh, this, this, the taking on of, of what's sort of known as the the Adelaide Mafia, I suppose. This leads sort of directly and indirectly to the Stuart Royal Commission. Can you talk us to, through a little bit about what that actually was? 
Yeah, so that's kind of the this this case, and it's it's a series of cases. Really, it takes up about a third or even yeah, true. Half Sorry, of I should really. I should say, don't feel you need to explain the whole thing. I know that it's quite. Oh hard. no, no, I've, I've I've become exceedingly efficient at summarising it. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but so so that's the, that was the starting point um, in 1953 when Rupert's 22. The sort of end point seven years later is when and and that's seven years of in which Rupert has and Rivette have been fighting these circulation battles, trying to expand, challenging the system and, you know, getting in trouble with you know, other seditious, uh, other libel charges and, and contempt cases as they go. But in 1959, it all kind of comes to a head and it all kind of comes to a head around the case of Rupert Max Stewart. He's an Arundel man, he's 26, 27, uh, and he is sentenced to death for the murder of a nine-year-old white girl um, called Mary Hatton in a town called Sejuna, kind of on the coast up in the northwest. And he's convicted pretty much on the basis of a confession, a signed confession, uh, which he claimed at trial was beaten out of him. The police um, testified that it was verbatim. And eventually, you know, this, this campaign grows around the case because people uh, become convinced that Rupert, who speaks Aranda as his first language, just couldn't have articulated or dictated uh, the confession as it was submitted to the court and as, as he signed it when he was taken into custody in, in late 1958. Uh, and so that it kind of fails at every level of appeal. Eventually, um, a, a Catholic priest called Tom Dixon gets involved. He speaks Aranda and he becomes convinced that um, Rupert couldn't have given this confession. Uh, so he eventually goes to Roland Rivette, the editor of the news, and says, look... Um, this is the story, uh, and I've been given a tip-off that I can actually go to Queensland and secure an alibi for uh, for Stuart on the day of the murder. So that's when News Corp, News Limited, as it was then, becomes involved. They can see that maybe with this, you know, kindly priest as the hero figure, it's a story they can they can get behind and sell to their readers. So they fund his trip. They send one of their reporters along. They find the um, the fun fair. Um, operators that had employed Stuart at the time. They get the alibi. Um, there's an enormous pressure uh, on the place of government and uh, they decide to hold a royal commission to get to the bottom of this case and the confession. And at the heart of this royal commission, there's a dramatic walkout because the lawyer who's flown in from Sydney to represent Stuart gets stopped mid-examination of a police officer, the one who first pointed the finger um, at Stuart. Uh, and he is kind of shocked that he would be disrupted in the middle of a you know, cross-examination. So he walks out, and it's the news's coverage of that walkout um, in their headlines and in the news posters. They say, you know, these commissioners cannot do the job uh, and that you won't give Stuart a fair go, things like that, which were uh, kind of explosive. Um, and Playford held them up in court in Parliament, said it was the greatest libel ever levelled at um, the South Australian judiciary. And that leads to, finally, in 1960, uh, after the the, Stuart, the Royal Commission has concluded the verdict upheld, but uh, Stuart's uh, sentence has been commuted to life in prison. After that has all kind of blown over, there's this sort of coda where News Limited and Rowan Rivette, the editor, they get charged with nine different variations of libel, including seditious libel, which is this kind of dramatic, kind of archaic uh, charge, basically uh, accusing them of bringing the, the state's institutions into, into disrepute. Um, and that leads to the climax of the book where over a week and a bit, um, the government lawyers um, 
pour over quite forensically how Rupert's newspapers are run, in, try and interrogate journalist after journalist. They all try and stonewall to the extent that two of them are sent to custody. One of them is given an unconditional pardon just so he can stop, you know, pleading fear of self-incrimination. And even Rupert at one point um, takes the stand and um, he basically is silent as well. And it's at the very height of that um, trial uh, when Rivette finally takes the stand and in his um, his statement that he gives, he um, identifies Rupert, in fact, as the author of those headlines, many of those headlines that got them in such hot water um, back in 1959. So it shows, it shows a lot of things, um, but it also shows that um, at this moment of incredible pressure but also excitement, um, Rupert was still playing a very hands-on role in what was quite a contentious campaign. Yeah, I mean, God, it does... Again, the sort of the the, the real, the the great thing about your book is is the things that strike you as very similar, and the things that really do. Drawing a line between risking jail time on behalf of an indigenous man wrongly, possibly possibly wrongly accused, um, to you know, Andrew Bolt writing about political Aboriginals, um, Mm. it's it's a it's a it's a twisty line, isn't it? you talked there. You've mentioned a lot, uh, Rowan Rivett, the um, who's sort of, I suppose, in some ways, the kind of he's almost the co-lead of the story that you tell. He's definitely a, a sort of very strong supporting character. Um, tell us, tell our listeners a bit about who he was and and the role that he kind of played in Young Rupert's life. Yes, yeah, so Rivett was he was a journalist. He was actually the, the grandson of uh, Alfred Deacon, um, which and just to show that these it, it, these kind of networks. Um, go back generations when Keith Murdoch first um, tried to have a crack at making it in Fleet Street as a journalist in pre-1910. He actually had a a letter of introduction from Alfred Deakin. That was a weird little footnote. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't surprise me. But anyway, so a a generation later, um, uh, he takes Rivette kind of under his wing as one of his sort of bright young men, they're called, or Murdoch men. And Rivette is, he's already at that point, he's served in the war, he was a, a war correspondent in Singapore when Singapore fell. Had this, there's an incredible book he wrote called Behind Bamboo of how he, um, for days and days and days, was sort of trekking through the jungle to escape um, the, the oncoming Japanese. Eventually, he's captured and um, spends years in the POW camp. Uh, writes this best-selling and pretty harrowing memoir, memoir. Comes back to Australia, works as a journalist um, for Keith for the Herald. And that's where he first meets Rupert when Rupert's a teenager. Um, and he, they clearly strike up some kind of friendship because uh, you can see in the records of Geelong Grammar that um, Rivette and his wife actually visited Rupert at school uh, and he gave a little talk about his book, his, his experiences in, in China as a foreign correspondent as well for the Herald. And then he become, he's sort of in the box seat near the end of Keith's life because Keith hires him to be the editor of the Adelaide News, which is um, this important part of this inheritance that he's building up for Rupert. Um, but, of course, he's also, also by that point become very close friends with Rupert because immediately prior to that, he'd been stationed in London as a Herald correspondent whilst Rupert was at Oxford. So Rupert is you know, far away from his family, far away from Australia, everything he knew, um, and Rivette's um, young family be, kind of become almost like a surrogate for him. Like they go on holidays, he often visits them at home. Um, and that is really interesting as well because that coincides with this period when Rupert is at his kind of most vocally progressive. 
And Rivet is a very progressive guy as well, and he's certainly encouraging him to do things like get involved with the University Labor Party. So then when he lands in Adelaide, Rivet does, before Keith has died, he is trying to yeah, refashion the news as this progressive crusading paper, which is not always easy in a small town like Adelaide, where people get sort of scandalised by the smallest things. Um, and also he's coming up against the, the advertiser, which is you know, still connected to Keith, his boss's main, you know, his day job, really. So he's he's facing a lot of um, conflicted interests that Keith has and kind of um, being frustrated by it as well. But then when Keith dies and Rupert comes to Adelaide, he's got this friend and, and confidant and ally who's there waiting for him, who's just been rearing to go, waiting for the glove to come off, I guess, to really stick it to the establishment. So you can see that there there's this real partnership um in those seven years. But obviously the story of of Rupert Murdoch, of the Murdochs, it's a Murdoch story. It's not a Rivet story. Mm-hmm. So inevitably we you know, we know that because you know, no one really knows the name Rowan Rivet these days. Inevitably you know he's not going to stick around forever. But because so much of Keith's story has been about um, establishing control and family control, it's... Yeah, in, it's this sort of doomed friendship, really, that inevitably they're going to come apart. Inevitably, um, Rupert isn't going to stay this kind of progressive um, young friend that uh, Rowan's able to egg on at Oxford and things like that. He's going to assert himself. His values are going to change as he's trying to become not a, a newspaper editor but a proprietor. So I think by the end of, of the book, which, you know, more the main arc of the book, which is this decade, 1960, 1950s, 1960, um, when they finally do part, um, it was really important to show that because, you know, Rowan hasn't changed. He's still crusading. He's still, you know, they're getting involved with these campaigns like the Stewart case. And although Rupert is, as, as I said, happy to get involved in these exciting moments and, um, and write headlines and things like that, the fact that their relationship ultimately comes to a kind of bittersweet end, it shows the distance that has the distance that has grown between them uh, illustrates how far Rupert has come. Hmm. Um, going back to uh, Sir Keith and and his sort of role in young hmm. Rupert's life, there's there's a bit of a sense in in your book, and I think what well, maybe actually more so even in um, I don't know if you've read Sally Young's uh, volume mm. on, on on a similar era of the newspaper mm. business in Australia, that that to some degree um, in his final years, and, and feel free to correct me if, if I've interpreted this wrong, but it's, in some degree, in his final years. Keith cuts a slightly diminished figure in some ways. He's, you know, obviously he's, he's got his failing health. He's sort of pursuing some slightly obsessive kind of vendettas against other people, his sort of perceived enemies in, in politics and stuff. Um, do you think, um, well, one, do you think that's true? But also, do you think, what, what lessons do you think Rupert took from the, the kind of final years of the old man? Yeah, it, you put it really well. He's, he's in this kind of power struggle where he's really quite desperately grasping onto what influence he has at the Herald, but also um, around the country as well. I, I could see in, in the archives at the Nas- in the National Library that he was entertaining, you know, taking over papers that had once been some of his loudest critics just in order to grab hold of anything that was available. Um, and yes, Sally does uh, delve into that arc um, really quite brilliantly as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think from Rupert's perspective, uh, like he would have grown up with this father who, although his father was a workaholic and probably didn't spend a lot of time 
you know, hanging out with his young son. But he would have grown up around this figure who sort of lived and breathed newspapers. I'm sure if, you know, any time that Rupert did spend with his dad, the newspaper would never have been far from him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think he would have been aware of this, of this power struggle. Uh, whether or not he was really cognizant of the fact that um, it, was all, all, it was all kind of being done for him, uh, I'm not so sure. There are moments when he's, he seems like he's very happily being this kind of brash, arrogant young guy at Oxford um, that he isn't really thinking about um, joining his father in the newspaper business, really. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting period. Um, but then when, he, when Keith does die, I think it, it is quite a, Even though he is very unwell... Uh, and he has been unwell for a few years. That's part of why he's starting to lose his grip because he's forced, kind of by health issue, by health um, issues, to hand over the editorship of the Herald in um, just before Christmas in 1959. Um, and he's in one of his last actions is to sort of reassert control over the company, just sort of hours before he finally dies. Um, but I think when he does die, it, it, it does take Rupert by surprise, and that's what kind of thrusts him into this this extension of his father's um, power struggle and maybe uh, the fact that he's so surprised that he isn't able to hold on to um, some of those interests like the Courier Mail, um, maybe he wasn't aware of just how stretched his father had become. Yeah, right, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a, a lovely passage uh, that you write, and I know that in some ways it's unfair to ask you to answer a question that you posit as almost as, almost posit as unanswerable, but you, you, you put the question to the reader, if... Uh, Murdoch hadn't been forced to start with the second best paper in Australia's fourth best city. Uh, editors, no, I'm not going to ask you to alienate anyone and tell him, <laughs> tell us who you think number five is. But um, challenging orthodoxies and good tastes, but still equipped. Oh, sorry. Would he have become the incendiary blend of outsider and insider, unafraid of challenging orthodoxies and good taste, but still equipped with the tools and privileges of a press lord's heir? Um, what, what what conclusion did you come to? On that, on that point, or, or yeah, what are your thoughts on that point? Well, I think there are aspects of his character and his kind of the trajectory trajectory that he's on right before he's, you know, the, his father dies and the sort of rug is pulled out from under him. That you know he was a, in some ways really disappointing his father, <laughs> uh, and there's I think there's a there's an alternate universe not too far from our own where he kind of is maybe a bit of a fail son. You know, if Keith lives for a bit longer and Rupert is forced to do an, an extended apprenticeship under him, that relationship might not have worked out in, in quite the way that either of them hoped, and Rupert might not have continued. On the other hand, if you know they had managed to hold on to the career mail, as I outlined in one, uh, I had a lot of fun with it, a story in the book where after Keith dies, uh, the editor that he's installed in Brisbane um, suddenly realises... Uh, is was made very aware of the fact that Keith's silent partner was the kind of not- notorious gangster um, John Wren, uh, <laughs> and now he was having to come up. And John Wren was now trying to assert his own influence on the paper as well. <laughs> so whether how how Rupert would have survived that um, that kind of conflict as his first sort of. Um, First uh, introduction to his apprenticeship, compared to you know, the, he on the one hand he's kind of frustrated, has this big in Adelaide he has this huge chip on his shoulder, which is definitely I think a driving and animating factor. He's coming up against his father's former colleagues, and he's kind of yeah really pissed off I guess about losing Brisbane. But he's also got this very receptive um, environment to to grow and to find his way. Uh, as a newspaper man, but also stir 
tearing up the system in Adelaide, but also in a, in a relatively small pond where he's got Rivette by his side, who he's happy to let take the lead for the first few years. Um, but he, it's kind of this... It's a high pressure because it's a small city, it's a small pond, but it's also a relatively safe environment. Um, so I think I think the variables of of these Adelaide years they're both a crucible, but also just yeah, it's these. You can see that this is the foundation that in many ways shapes what comes afterwards. And if he'd gone straight to Brisbane and come up against John Wren. Um, yeah, who knows what would have happened. Colourful racing identity, uh, John. Yeah, I think that is the better way to describe him. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's my role here is always to be the guy that did a lot of defamation training. It's always um, qualifying well, luckily, things. him and his family are very dead. So. <laughs> yes, that's very true. That's very true. So it's, yeah. you're probably safe there. Um, Look, I, I could I could probably keep you here well below beyond the the, the bounds of the show, but I will, I'll just ask one final question before I let you go. Um, mm. Paddy Manning, in his his review of the book that was published in Crikey, uh, he puts forward that it's kind of hard not to finish this book. He doesn't use the word admiration, but he uses the word sympathy for the the boy publisher Rupert Murdoch. Um, is that the conclusion that you came to in in, in in putting this book together? I mean, there is certainly a, a part of the book. One aspect of the book that I you know reading reading these these letters um, from that early period, and he he is coming up against some really formidable, really powerful forces, ironically ones that were, you know, orchestrated by his late father. But he's really sticking it to systems that in the very early days kind of were crying out to be disrupted in some ways. So, and I think that was really important to understand both from the perspective of, you know, the story that Rupert tells himself and how how he's the hero of his own story, I guess, Um, but also how you know, there is this kind of us first them mentality that has, and, you know, people that are in are inside the, the Rupert bubble, you know, they fight very fiercely. Um, it, when the sun shines on you, it, it's pretty good. So I think that was important to understand as well how he could, he did have these sort of charismatic elements and he was kind of fighting some good fights in those early days and how that kind of, um, mentality, I guess, if if not the you know specifics of what he's actually accomplished, can kind of um, carry on later into his life. Um, but yeah, I think by by the end of by the end of the book, when he kind of comes comes 180 degrees and comes back and takes everything over in quite a quite a brutal way, you see that he he has learned all the lessons of the people that he was coming up against and then and pushed it even further. It is a fantastic book, Walter. Thank you so much for joining us on Spin Cycle. Um, that's Walter Marsh with his talking about his book, Young Rupert, The Making of the Murdoch Empire. Walter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Triple ah! I'm just going to end on one very quick story in the media. There's a story in the New York Post, speaking of Rupert Murdoch, his uh, New, York ta- uh, New York-based uh, tabloid. Regarding the bag of cocaine that was found in the West Wing last month, I mean, it could have produced a lot more weirdness than it has in some ways. But they have followed up on a post uh, from the uh, website Shoulder of Fortune, which is a story unto itself. It's this uh, resurrection of a longtime journal that called itself the the Journal of Professional Adventurers. Um, but they cite se- several sources saying that that Joe Biden, U.S. President Joe Biden, knows who brought that cocaine into the into the White House, um, and what they do. Do is that they back this up with the claim that they have texted a number which they say is linked to President Biden to try and sniff out the culprit. Um, they get the response, hi there, it's J- President Biden. Thanks for reaching out. I'm excited to be connected. 
it turns out the number that they've sent these texts to, apparently in kind of <laughs> trying to trying to find out <laughs> who left cocaine in the White House, it's a it's a web it's a number that he sent. Um, to the website community.com, which is a place where basically high-profile figures allow people to contact them directly with um, queries or or feedback. In this case, it's Biden asking for for kind of stories that he will use and campaigns that he puts forward. Um, so the, the number it's not it's not the result of um, you know cont- of cult of cultivating sources or uh, investigating. It's just googling his name and taking a number that is literally in his Instagram bio. Uh, so inspirational stuff all around there. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.